Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter and chapter 3. It's good to be back in 1 Peter. I think we, uh, we, we came to a, a, a neat breaking point from our series on his life as well as his writing. <clears throat> we, take a, we took a break after we preached on marriage and had a sermon for wives and a sermon for husbands, which took us through chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And then we pressed pause because uh, the deacons had asked me to, to preach on a few matters that are going to be um, uh, worthy of discussion when we get into our Constitution and bylaws in phase four with the congregation. We had to spend some time talking through Matthew chapter 18 on church discipline. Uh, we had three or four messages connected with that. And then while we were in Matthew 18, uh, I was encouraged to go through my forgiveness material again, which I want to do every couple of years with you. And that took us through the rest of chapter 18. And then we had the holidays, right, mixed into that. And I also had to um, preach a message called the Community of Grace. That was a three-part message on church unity. As again, the deacons wanted us to start that conversation from the pulpit for when we talk about our church covenant uh, in, in phase four of our revision. And that's coming up soon where you'll be involved with that. But now it's time to return back to 1 Peter and we come to chapter 3, and we're going to consider verses 8 through 12 this morning. And wouldn't you know it, I couldn't have worked this out on my own if I tried. Guess what Peter's theme is going to be for us as we come back to First Peter after all these months? Unity in the church. And so in God's providence, his spirit wants us to consider this theme yet one more Sunday together. So let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we can look into your word and become reacquainted not only with the author, Peter, <clears throat> but also this amazing letter. And I pray that we will quickly re-engage our minds with what has gone on before in this letter and, and, and pick up on the urgency of what we will see this morning together. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know who Greg Elder is, but he's a writer, and, and Greg Elder wrote the following little scene that I just loved. He's sharing his personal testimony for, about when he was just a little child at the beach. And he said this, he writes these words, growing up on the Atlantic coast, I spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. Whole cities would appear beneath my hands. One year, for several days in a row, though, I was accosted by bullies who smashed my creations. They destroyed my cities. So I decided to try an experiment, he writes. The next day, I went out to my normal place, and I put cinder blocks, rocks, and chunks of concrete in the base of my castles. Then I built the sand kingdoms, the whole city on top of the rocks. Well, the local thug showed up again as normal, and I just happened to slip away at that moment. And their bare feet suddenly met their match as they kicked over the city, one building at a time. They found the cinder blocks. Isn't it great? I like it when the good guys get smart and win. 
You know, I have a question for you in light of that illustration. My question is this. When the world kicks the church, do they find only sand or do they find substance? Do they find that the local church is easily destroyed or do they find that it is solid to the core? What do they find? You know, it's sad. We're living in the years we are, in the decade we are right now, and we have seen that sometimes external pressures that the church faces sometimes reveals internal crumbling and weakness of the church. I just need to mention certain words to you, and you'll say, oh yeah, that was an external pressure that caused friction and division in churches like ours. Even in this area. How about the word COVID? How about the word woke? How about cancel culture? Where things that we hold dear are being assailed every night in the headlines. And we're being told, our culture's being told to marginalize us and cancel us. That creates external pressure that reveals some internal problems. How about if I put these two words together? Election year. Sometimes during external pressures, life in the church can crumble internally. You know, Peter had a good buddy. This buddy was part of his internal circle with Jesus, the top three tier, you might say, the the inner circle of Christ. His friend's name is James, no doubt. James, of course, is the brother of our Lord. He wasn't in that inner circle of Peter, James, and John, but, but he sure looked like their leader as a brother, perhaps. And he was also the one that Peter interacted with greatly at the church of Jerusalem after our Lord's ascension. I don't know what they talked about when they got together, but I'm sure that they would share some notes with each other of things that they're finding in the leadership of the church as our Lord builds it. See, Peter and James would both agree because they both wrote on the same thing. In James chapter 1 we see James writing his letter to the scattered Christians who were scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution. But what he found is that his scattered congregation was landing in worse persecution. And in that persecution, during that external pressure, Christians were turning on each other. They were clamoring for a post of leadership so they could be uh, the Messiah, the rescuer, of their brothers and sisters who were suffering. And and that would create conflict and schism. And James wrote his epistle to challenge that. And by the time James in his letter gets to chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 4, he's going to say to the church, stop berating each other because of the external pressures. That's not wisdom that comes down from above. That's earthly, sensual, and demonic, is what James will say. And James, I can imagine, would be saying to Peter over coffee, man, the church, 
when it's hitting external pressure, it's, it starts to crumble on the inside. It, the external pressure reveals problems on the inside that were there even when there was an external pressure, see? And I can see Peter in my mind's eye agreeing with James, and he says, that's why, that's why I had to write my epistle too. Same thing. I'm writing to Jews and Gentiles, James, and it's the same dynamic. External pressures reveal fissures and, and problems that we wouldn't have even known about had they not turned up the heat of external pressures. That brings us to Peter and his epistle. We remember in chapter 1 that we're introduced to the amazing gospel, the, the rescuing gospel that has its roots before time began with the, the coming of Christ, the sending of Christ. And we continue to read in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 of uh, through around verse 12 of chapter 2 of who we are as the redeemed. We are living stones. We are infants. We're growing. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And then we round the corner in verse 11 with mandates of live like who you are. You must Live the reality of your identity, especially now as you enter into a season of persecution. And by the way, this very wave of persecution Peter writes of is the same wave of persecution that will take Peter's life. We've been through those verses together, but then we saw something in, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13. Peter starts on the outside of the church with secular, godless society. And out there, he reminds us of the importance as Christians to have a, a spirit of an appropriate submission to ungodly government, to ungodly employers. We have the example of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, and all the way through 25. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, what about ungodly, unsaved spouses? How do we respond to them with submission? And then we went to verse 7. That was our last message here where for the first time, Peter's addressing a potential oppressor. And this time, it is a Christian husband. How do we handle this? Uh, an oppressive husband, excuse me, in, in the verses 1 through 6. And in verse 7, he, he does address potential oppressors, but teaching Christian husbands the very opposite of how to live with your wives in an understanding way and treat her with honor. So he starts back in chapter 2 with the outsiders, outside the church, unbelievers. He ends in verse 7 talking about inside the church, and he's going to stay inside the church with verses 8 through 12, but then he's going to move, as we'll see next week in verse 13, back to the outsiders, to those who are responsible for the persecution, be it government or employers or perhaps even within family. But the passage we're looking at today is focusing on the believers in the church. And he starts with these words in the English in verse 8. It says, to sum up, 
That's the wording of the New American Standard. It's one word in the Greek. It's telos. It means outcome. What Peter's asking is this. When he starts verse 8 with, to sum up, Peter is saying, do you understand, after coming this far in my letter, do you understand where you are and what this means? He says, we've talked about suffering. We've talked about your identity. We've talked about this dark cloud coming over you because of your identity, because of your identification with Christ, and that cloud may even show itself in a home. But that doesn't change your identity. It doesn't change that you are redeemed and with others who are redeemed. So he says in verse 8, let me tie this together for you. To sum up, what's Peter's goal in this verse, in the next few verses? His goal is to address the family dynamics of believers. And I'm not talking about the family that lives at your mailing address. I'm talking about this family. Our family dynamics as believers, even when we are getting kicked by the world. Basically, Peter is saying this at this point in his epistle. As we prepare to get ready for kicks from outside the church, we have to, have our, we have to make sure our house is in order inside the church. If you want to respond with grace towards those who persecute you because you're a Christian, then you better figure out how to treat each other as Christians within the church. Paul agrees with this priority. He writes twice similar words along these lines. In Galatians 6 verse 10, he says, While we as a church have opportunity, let us do good to all people, saved and unsaved, but then he says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If you want to know how to respond with grace to those outside the church, practice inside the church first. And he'll say the same thing again to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. He writes, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Talking about your relationships in the church. Don't repay another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Get your house in order in the church so that you and I can survive with grace and respond with grace to those outside of our church. So I guess I word my theme this morning in the form of a question. When it comes to your one sandcastle in the landscape of a sand kingdom, is your castle only sand or is it solid at the core? You're going to get your answer to my question, as you can tell from your notes, by considering five virtues, one test, and two, incentives. Five virtues, one test, and two incentives. So join me in chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you, without exception, church, without exception, all of you 
may be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. I want you to, first of all, consider these five virtues. In your notes, I have it in the form of a chart. I've left a little space to the left of the chart in your notes for you to jot down the actual word from the English Bible that's open on your lap, or the one I'm reading, for each of these five virtues. I want you to list these out to the left of that chart. For the first box, put the word harmonious. Harmonious. For the second box, sympathetic, as the verse goes on. Harmonious, sympathetic. In that third row, brotherly. Just the word brotherly. The fourth, kind-hearted. And the fifth, humble in spirit. Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now, what are these? These are five virtues that as he comes back now and he's starting to say, you know what this means. If you are who you are and the persecutors are who they are, then these are the five virtues Paul, excuse me, Peter reaches for first to say, these must define you. These must define you within the body of Christ so that you together will be able to handle what comes at you from a godless culture. Five virtues. First of all, consider this word harmonious. It it means to just literally be like-minded. That's what it says in the Legacy Standard Bible. The ESV, I think, has unity of mind. These are good translations of this particular word. It means to think the same. And this has everything to do with what we've spent three weeks talking about as a church family. This has everything to do with unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is where we are all the same. We like the same stuff. We look the same. We sound the same. We smell the same. That's uniformity. That's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ has a rich texture of different. There is diversity that creates the beauty of this unity. Uh, we've looked at several passages as we, we have punctuated that in recent weeks. One of those passages was Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's almost like with this virtue of being harmonious with others in this body of Christ, this expression of his body that we call Calvary, it means that we each have a fixation on our union in Christ. We're fixated on that. We marvel at that. We marvel how the gospel can find all of us in our different backgrounds with different strengths, different weaknesses, different baggage, and bring us together and make us into a one. 
And we're fixated on that. It's one of the reasons we come when we gather. Because we want to be with the rest of the one. And marvel. There's a fixation on our union. This is a theological fixation we have. We are fixated on our union theologically. Why? Because that means we are completers one of another. I don't have the full expression of the church, the body of Christ in my family. That's why we just don't do church at home. We've got a few members of the body there, but not the full body. We believe, if we're harmonious, as one theologian put it years ago, in fundamentals, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in everything, love. Yeah, that's the virtue, harmonious. Now, if that's unity with diversity, and that goes in your blank, unity with diversity, what's the opposite of it? What are we going to put in that box titled Verses? It's not unity with diversity. In that box, it's disunity because of diversity. The very beauty that should create a magnetic draw within our hearts towards each other is now polar opposite. It's the differences that push us away from each other. Now, we expect this in the Olympics when our teams take the floor. We expect this with Olympic boxing, but not in the church. If the fixation of this virtue is on union, the fixation of its opposite is on differences. If the fixation of the virtue is on theology, the fixation of the opposite is on pragmatics. What will work? according to our opinion. If the fixation with the virtue is on being a completer of each other, the fixation of the opposite is on being a competitor with each other. Peter says, you know what you need? First one out the gate. Like-mindedness. Be harmonious. But what's the second virtue you wrote down? It's the word sympathetic in this translation. This is a rich word, as you would expect. Being sympathetic is not a private sport. This isn't scrolling on social media and doing an internal or even breathing out the rich word, aww. That's not sympathetic. No, this virtue is in action. This is, this is a virtue that wants to go beyond the awe and the scroll, this is the, the virtue that makes you want to show your sympathy, show your feelings, share the feelings of someone else, their joys and their sorrows, but not as a spectator, but as someone who enters in. Those are real tears. And you're not content to leave them in front of a screen, you want them over a coffee with them. What goes in the blank on this? For sympathetic, it's deep engagement. Deep engagement in each other's lives. You show me someone who's really, really hurt. You show someone, me someone who is really, really ashamed. 
You show me someone who is, as a pastor said on the phone to me yesterday morning in another state, it's so dark right now, I can't even see to lead. You show me someone like that in our church family, I'll show you someone that might not come looking for you. You have to go looking for them. And when you find them, you engage. You lean in. Romans 12, 15 says, when one member suffers, all of them suffer. We weep with those who weep in Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when there's a suffering member, we move towards them. So sympathetic is deep engagement. What a virtue. But what's the opposite of that? Think about it. The opposite is a cold disinterest. Or as some would say, out of sight, out of mind. That would never happen in a local church like ours, right? We would block someone. Or have a conservative Baptist cancel culture. Would that happen here? Harmonious, sympathetic. What's the third virtue? The third virtue is simply the word brotherly. Brotherly. You know this word. Philadelphos. It's the love of the brothers. Do you understand that Peter is going to use either the word or the concept in all five of his chapters in this epistle? Think it's important? In chapter 1, verse 22, you see it. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That concept shows up again in chapter 2, verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood. You see it here in chapter 3, verse 8, but if you go to chapter 4, verse 8, you'll see the same concept. 4, verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. And again, in the very last verse of this epistle, you'll see the same concept. Greet one another with a kiss of love. It's in every single chapter. You see, what is this? This is a body awareness. Body aware does not happen on accident. And so for this virtue and that blank, I would put family perspective. Family perspective. Several of you received news yesterday morning and included me in the text, thank you, about two people in our church who are suffering where there have been drastic changes out of their control and you were aware of that and and entering into not only hurting for them but starting to work on solutions for them, how to encourage them. That's body awareness. That's brotherly. Now, If brotherly, this virtue, is talking about family perspective, what's the opposite? The opposite, I would say, is war footing. I'm I'm not just, I'm I'm not engaged or, or acting with excitement and energy about being in the same family with others in my local church. I fight against them. I set up myself as 
as an adversary. I'd like for you to jot down Peter's friends' verses on this, James 4, 1 through 4. The language James will use there is the, is the uh, wording of war footing. He's going to talk about strategizing and murdering and going to battle. It's the exact opposite of brotherly. You know, it's interesting. One commentator, MacDonald, put it this way in his commentary. He uses the name providence for God. He says, providence does not ask us whom we would like to be our brothers. That is settled for us. He chooses who our brothers and sisters are. And he continues, but we are bidden to love them, irrespective of our natural predilections and tastes, end quote. Yeah, that, brotherly. What's the the next, the fourth virtue? It's kind-hearted. Kind-hearted. The Legacy Standard Bible calls it tender-hearted. This is talking of a compassion, a tenderness that is moved to solve. It's moved to relieve. It's moved to aid. What do we put in the blank here? This is being sensitive to needs in others. You know, Peter, when he was walking with our Lord during our Lord's three years of public ministry, heard Jesus several times probably tell the story of what we call the Good Samaritan. And people that should have cared didn't and even created space between themselves and the one that needed help. It was a Samaritan of all people who stepped across the boundary of yuck and had compassion. Peter never forgot that. A kind-hearted person is a responder. But what's the opposite of that? The opposite is not to be sensitive to needs. The opposite is to be resent, is, is resentment because of needs. Resentment because of needs. We don't want to take the time to get our hands dirty, is the opposite of this. Someone else's baggage, we just don't want it to be a distraction to us, to my life, to my Monday through Friday. Giving our time to someone that has needs is like trying to row a a boat in shallow water with tall weeds and the anchor is dropped. It's an embarrassment. That's the opposite of kind-hearted. If a kind-hearted person is a responder, the opposite is to be a resenter. And then there's one more in verse 8. It says, humble in spirit. I think the ESV says humble mind. This is the virtue of, of, of courtesy. Courtesy. You focus and direct your grace to others because in your mind, they are more important. What goes in the blank here? little math symbol. Remember the greater than or less than? That arrow is pointing at you and opening up towards others. That's what goes in that blank. I think you can figure out what goes in the opposite now. 
the large end is towards you and it closes on them. Humble in spirit simply means you are responding to others as they are more important than you. What a virtue. You see, Peter still has in his mind what he saw with his own eyes in the upper room before our Lord was betrayed and denied by Peter. Jesus stripped himself and put a towel about his waist and washed his disciples' feet. That's John 13, verses 4 through 17. I know that that marked Peter's mind even up to the time of this writing because in chapter 5 of this letter, verse 5, Peter will, I believe, refer again to the upper room where he will say in chapter 5, verse 5, every one of you clothe yourselves with humility. Now what do we do with a chart like this? Well, it's interesting. You hear from this pulpit a lot the importance of growing as a Christian. The reality of progressive sanctification. We go to Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24 most often as kind of our touch point on that. Where we are to put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, put on the new man. Or as I like to say, we repent, we renew, and we replace. Or as we say down at the Wilds Christian camp, we, we put off, we put in, and then we put on. You understand that that's not unique to Ephesians 4? You'll find that same, pro, that same prescription in Old and New Testament. You, ex, you, you open the scripture, find out what you need to put off, repent of it, and what you need to put on. And clothe yourself with it. We see it across the different authors in the New Testament. And Peter is included as well. Remember what we saw back in chapter 1, verses 13 and following? Look at this. I want you to look for put off, put in, and put on. Or repent, renew, replace. And these verses, I'm sorry, it's chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action... Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Sounds like a put off there. To the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Sounds like put on. All right. Peter reflects the same priority. You open the word, you put it in your mind, and the word of God tells you what must go and what must come in. What you must repent of, what you must put on, what you replace it with. Now bring that to your chart. If you see in the chart that you are more defined by disunity, a cold disinterest, a fighting attitude... You resent messy people, and you like your likes better than other people's likes, then you know what Scripture's telling you to do? It's the same pattern. You need to repent. You need to own it. You need to use this language we're talking in this morning and say, God, I see it. Will you forgive me? Had your word not renewed my mind, I wouldn't have seen that this morning. It explains so much. I repent. And instead, Lord, May you grace me with a spirit 
of harmony and sympathy and brotherly love and kind-heartedness and humility. And by the way, Lord, that looks like you. So I want to put you on instead. I want you to note these five virtues as you evaluate your sandcastle in the landscape of our local church, city. But you know, the truth be told, we are our own worst critics. Why? Because we lie to ourselves. We always say we're doing better than we're doing. And we see a list like that and we're like, I got the definitions down. I got them. And you study in all of your, your hardware and, 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 and commentaries, you're going to find you have a very workable, accurate definition for each of those virtues. Good. But you understand, knowing the definition does not equal doing a demonstration, so to speak. And so that's why, let's simplify it. Let's go from five virtues down to one test. One test will help you justify or judge yourself. One test. It's in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Wow. There's your one test. Do you pass or fail, verse 8? Verse 9 tells you, makes you tell the, the truth. It's test. It's a test. Here's my question. When you are wronged by someone whether it's a real wrong and it really happened and it really stinks or just a perceived wrong you're assuming motives when you are wronged what is your predictable response predictable response and by the way according to Peter you only have two choices just two there's not a third one here Number one, you either give a receipt, or number two, you give a blessing, right? I mean, it's right there in the, in the wording. We don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. There's two choices. That's it. When someone wrongs you, do you give them a receipt, which means I'm going to get you now. That's a receipt. Someone, someone is silent to you, you're going to be silent to them. Someone avoids you, you're going to turn your back on them. Someone slanders you, you're going to slander them. Someone doesn't like your post, you're not going to like their post. You can see it at every level. And Peter understood this one, right? We're not surprised. Remember in Luke chapter 22, when they came for his Lord, Peter went for his sword. I didn't mean that to rhyme, but I, I'm going to write that down later. That's giving a receipt. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. Is that... Is that your predictable response when your spouse goes sideways on you. When your teens or your parents or someone across the aisle here in church wrongs you, is that your first instinct is to hit back. That's a receipt. And, and he says here, that's something to be repented of. You don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. There's only one alternative to a receipt, and it's a blessing. He says again in verse 9, giving a blessing instead. You say, what does it mean to bless someone? You're like, I want to bless them. I want to bless them out right now. What does it mean to bless? And let me just summarize the concept of blessing. 
with three considerations. It sounds longer than it is. It's less than a sentence. Blessing someone has everything to do with how I speak to them, no matter what they're giving me, how I speak about them to other people, even when they're not around. I'm still speaking kindly. And listen, it's not only how you speak to them and about them, but how you speak for them. And I'm talking there of prayer. You have two options, Peter says. And you know, Peter was at that Sermon on the Mount. How many times he heard that sermon, we can only imagine. But Luke 6, 27 to 28 sounds a lot like Jesus. I think Jesus is getting quoted by Peter here. Jesus said in Luke 6, 27 and 28, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. It's just the one test. Don't return evil for evil. Warren Wiersbe says this, there's, there's three levels when you're wronged. You can either return evil for good, that's satanic. You can return good for good or evil for evil, that's human. But there's a third level, and that's returning good for evil. That's divine. It's one test, but little qualifier I'll throw in now, you're not allowed to answer the test. You're to take the test, but you don't give it to yourself. You have to ask your spouse. Start there in the circles of intimacy. Start with your spouse, then work out to your kids if you're married and have kids. Go to your closest friends that will speak truth to you. And then after all that, go into the church lobby and ask people. And after that, you might just want to ask the cashier at Meyer. Because you can fake them out, and you can do a lot of faking in the lobby as well. But when you get down to the closest of friends and even the closest relationships of marriage, that's where you take the test and you listen. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts was right. He said this, To be angry about trifles is mean and childish. Yes, this is Isaac Watts, the hymn writer. To be angry about trifles is mean and childish. To rage and be furious is brutish. And to maintain perpetual wrath is akin to the practice and temper of devils. But to prevent and suppress rising resentment is wise and glorious. It is manly. It's divine. The hymn writer got it right. Of course, Charles Spurgeon nudges his way into the conversation. Spurgeon preached these words to his congregation in London. Do not say I cannot help having a bad temper. Friend, you must help it. Pray to God to help you overcome it at once, for either you must kill it or it will kill you. End quote. You say, okay, that's a hard test if i got to ask other people in the church. Maybe I'm just not for all this. Maybe I just don't belong. 
because I'm being wronged by this culture and even more being wronged by this people in this church or even in my family. And so I'm out of here. I'm going to get out of this marriage. I'm going to get out of this family. I'm going to get out of this church. My world is the exception to what Peter is writing here. Something is wrong and exceptional for my situation. Life is too short. You ever think those words? Because I want to finally just drop down and point out two incentives for you not to bolt. Two incentives. Look at verse 9. It says, You were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for, and after that word, we're going to have an Old Testament quote. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away. By the way, that sounds like put off. From evil and do good. Sounds like put on. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's two incentives that are dropped right in front of you here to keep you from bolting. The first incentive, just put in that blank the word calling. You're calling. And for the sake of time, for the second blank, put in the word blessings. These are the two incentives. You see, what do you mean calling? This is to answer those who might be thinking, i got to get out of here. Something is wrong. I'm in, listen, the wrong place. I'm in the wrong marriage. I'm in the wrong church. I made a wrong decision. Something is wrong. But Peter has been addressing this all along with this word calling, meaning everything from your salvation to what you're suffering. Remember chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then you go to verse 21 of chapter 2. You have been called for this purpose, enduring suffering. Since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Of course, you have here in chapter 3 and verse 9 what we just read. You were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This calling is so important. You're not in the wrong place. You're not in the wrong marriage. You're not in the wrong church. The fact is, you are right where God, the one who called you in salvation, to the place where you would be with other people to help mature you in your salvation. It's your calling. Nothing's wrong. The issue here is not location. The issue, listen, is lordship. That's your calling. That's an incentive to stay put and grow. 
But there's a second incentive, and it's for the sake of this blank, blessings. Because it says at the end of verse 9, that you may inherit a blessing. Is that talking about eternal life? I think it's talking about, obviously, that's an assumption, eternal life. We've had that earlier in this epistle. This is talking about the here and now, especially with the psalm that's being quoted. You know what psalm he's quoting again here? Yes, again. He's quoting Psalm 34. Remember that psalm that says, Taste and see the Lord is good. Remember that? He's already been in this psalm, quoting it in this letter. Where did he do that? Chapter 2, verse 3. If you have, and this is a quote from that psalm, tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's Psalm 34, verse 8. But here in verses 10 and 11, he's quoting Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. Are you seeing what's taking shape here? As Peter is writing his epistle, his Bible is open to the Old Testament book of Psalm, and in particular, Psalm 34. And as he writes, he's thinking, he's reading, and this is what's going in my letter now. I love that, by the way, about biblical counseling. The Bible is open, and you can go from any text to the heart of anyone sitting in front of you. And just work through Scripture. And it's interesting, as much as Peter has been talking about the put-off and put-on dynamic, this, these verses from Psalms that he's quoting in these two verses have the put-on and put-on dynamic going on as well. I'll just say that three times in the English of what I just read from Psalm 34 here in 1 Peter, three times you're going to see the word must And three times you're going to see the concept of evil. There's something you must do, and there's something you must put off. These are your two blessings, your two incentives. That if you are, in the context of the relationships of the local church, putting off vices, putting on Christ-like virtues, you will see good days. That's your first incentive. And the second incentive is you're going to see forward movement. Even in your worst of days, you're going to find a reason to rejoice and have traction. And you will find you're never in a day where you can't grow more to be like Jesus. So you stay put. You say, I want a different alternative. Well, there is a different alternative. It's what Proverbs 13, 15 says. The way of the transgressor is hard. I want you to note something about these two incentives. They are not a legalism. They are not being delivered to you through a shotgun of fear of man. These two blessings, these incentives are not a bribery. They're not surface. They're not landing with a heavy hand. And they do not ignore pain. What these are are opportunities to put the gospel on display in your life. Stay put. So I had a question. When it comes to your one sandcastle in this church family, is it only sand? Or is it solid at the core? In order to be ready for the kicks coming from outside the church, we have to have our house in order inside the church. Again, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. 
but always seek after that which is good for one another and then for all the rest, all the people. It was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, who said, I've never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. It's true in his day and it's true in our day. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I'd encourage you this afternoon to pray through these five virtues. Not just, Lord, help me and bless me, but repent, put off, and put on, one at a time. You're in Christ, and as Paul Tripp says, there's a freedom with confession and repentance. You need to, secondly, ask several individuals to give you the one test. And I want you to start at your closest relationship and work your way out from the center. Not from your friends on Facebook. And then number three, reckon with these two incentives. There's no shortcuts in your Christian walk and in your growth. As I told my my kids as they grew up, shortcuts always take longer. It's also true spiritually. The bullies of the Romans 1 godless culture are coming. We're going to see them next week in verse 13. And they're coming to kick our church family castles. What will they find? Sand or solid rock? The benediction words of Paul in Romans 15 are sure appropriate here. Listen as I, as I read these. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you, church at Rome, to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this is our prayer as a church family this morning. Help our sandcastles to have concrete all through the heart. Help us to prepare inside this family for the growing encroachment of a lost world that's swinging at us because they can't hit you. May our relationships be this sweet and resemble you this much, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.